Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our audience, wherever you may be listening, live or on the archives. It is indeed an honor to have you listening, and, um, you know, we try to breathe present a, a diverse a diversity of guests across many different um, topic areas, but primarily dealing with the aftermath of crime. And I think today we, we have a very inspiring guest and one that certainly does fit the bill. And um, I think there's a, a big value in sort of reaching across the aisle, reaching across the country today because we have somebody from um, California, uh, and uh, coming across many different areas of crime victimization. Um, and I, I'm just so, so pleased to have uh, Patricia uh, Wentz-Kunis with us. But before we introduce her formally, Delilah, I want to say good morning to you and in Myrtle Beach and just say, you know, um, I, I think Patricia and I have – many um, areas of commonality because we both have been through so many different things in our lives and we both believe in emphasizing the word survivorship versus victimhood. And, and it, it, you know, I think we're cut from the same cloth in terms of that. And isn't that a very, very important issue after all? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I have to totally agree with you. Um, Patricia is someone that I have followed over over the internet for many, many years. And I think we've, we've crossed paths a few times, but I think this is the first time I've, I've ever had the opportunity to have a conversation with her. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And I just want to take a minute to plug um, our Inside Lens Network that houses this show, Shattered Lives, and several other podcasts, such as um, Crime Wire, The Transparency Project, Imagine Publicity on Air, and several others. Um, and some of the podcasts that are on the Inside Lens Network ha- actually highlight criminal cases, and some of those cases are open investigations. And I just want to let listeners know that it's our intent to allow families to be able to present their information and tell their story for consideration by other listeners, but our podcasts and hosts in no way represent the guests. We don't claim to be able to solve their cases, nor do we want to jeopardize any open investigations, but our guests present their own information. We can't control where they got it. Um, And while we might suggest some resources to them or some assistance, we're really not liable for what they do with that information. So that little legal beagle stuff (laughs) out of the way, um, I'm just very, very excited um, to hear all about Patricia's venture with Crime Victim Resources, and I know she's been at this for many, many years and has done one fantastic job. Right, and Crime Survivor, yeah. So um, with, with, with that, um, Patricia, um, uh, thank you for being, being, being with us and being part of the Shattered Lives Radio family. It's, it's a pleasure to have you today, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to take this podcast and share it with all of the, of the people that you know. And just to let you know up front, if you have other people that would like to be able to be featured on our, our series of um, radio podcasts and Inside Lens, feel free to use this as a tool as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. I really do appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. Um, You know, at face value, um, I I read some initial um, information and I thought, well, you know, this this is impressive. It's very impactful. And then I began to read your entire story and I was just 
I was overwhelmed with the the degree of victimization that you encountered, your your resiliency and your ability, um, you know, in the path that you chose to to graduate from multiple victimizations to where you are today. And I think maybe we should begin with, you know, how uh, whichever way you want to present in in this scenario. What you have gone through, because it speaks volumes in terms of where you were and where you have come today, and then we'll go from there with regard to your uh, resource center. So, so please do let us uh, please do kind of take it away and let us know um, how uh, how it began. Yeah, well, I I think the difference is you know between living a victim's life and a survivor's life is completely different, and I I really do feel that I lived a big part of my life as a victim. Um, and I'm not saying that in a negative sense, in the sense of, you know, people that are still struggling out there. I'm not saying that at all, because I, I struggled for a very, very long time, and I don't think that I knew the difference as I do now today. Um, but, you know, not to go through everything in my past, but I, I will just talk about, you know, April 4th of 2002, when my personal trainer came into my house, drugged me, wrapped my face um, in saran wrap, beat me black and blue, screaming that he was going to kill me and kill my son. And being victimized again, and although I had been victimized prior to that by other people, I had, I had never thought that someone would want to kill me. Like, I, I couldn't understand that. I don't think I can still understand that today. Like, what part of me or what would have I ever done in my life that would merit someone wanting to take my life and it took me a long time to kind of work through that to understand that it really wasn't about me in the first place it was about the other person um and you know i mean he was headbutting me banging my head into the wall kicking me screaming that he was going to kill me um and it wasn't until i was able to get over my 12-foot balcony which you know i don't know if i fell he pushed me i jumped i have no idea all i know is that was the only way to get away from him. And as I went over um, landing in my kitchen to eventually get to a front door, to eventually get to a neighbor's house to call 911. Um, and it, it's still to this day, I, I, it, it's like, you know, I talk about it, I share it, and it's not always easy to share it. Um, it triggers me a lot. And sometimes even to this point, all these years later, I, I feel like, I'm not sure I even want to share my story anymore. I'm, you know, is it making a difference and an impact? Because that's the only reason why, like, I'm on your show today to share it because I know there may be one other person out there listening that may be struggling and need to know that they're not alone, that there is hope for healing. They can survive and thrive. Um, Right. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because I was going to ask you, you know, as a survivor of so many life-changing events and, you know, you, how do you feel about having to tell your story or aspects of your story over and over? Can you, can, do you feel as if you, you can use this um, parts of your story to, to be effective with other people? I mean, I feel as if, we're always educating, and if there's just that even one person that you have made it, whose life you've made a difference, then then it has been worth it. I do. It's the only reason why I'm doing what I do. I feel like, you know, I feel like first and foremost with faith there is hope. So faith for me is everything. So I feel, though, that April 4th, God gave me the, the greatest gift and blessing to be able to have my next breath to be able to still be here because I know I, I really shouldn't be with everything that he did to me. And it's hard to explain to people because they weren't there. So they don't understand what he did. But um, I know that by God's gift to be able to give me that breath, to be able to get out of that place, to be able to get to a neighbor's to call 911, to still be here, the true gift and the true blessing. But uh, Above and beyond that is I feel in my heart and soul that God gave me a passion and a purpose and a gift to be able to survive, to be able to thrive, to be able to share my message, to share my story, 
to be able to empower and strengthen other victims. So the only reason why ultimately I'm still doing what I'm doing today is because I kept my promise. And on April 4th of 2002, I promised God that if you give me my next breath, I promise you that I will live for community above self. And all these years later, I feel like I have stood with that. I, I feel like I'm walking with that. And although I always say I'm imperfect and I make mistakes, and I'm still learning myself day in and day out. I'm not a, a lawyer or a doctor or a therapist. I'm not an expert in the sense of being educated in the field, although I feel like I've learned firsthand more than I could have ever learned from a professor or a book or a school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. And so truly, it just was not your time Your time to go, and you, you, you have that purpose, and we all realize realize that in 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 this journey that we're taking my mine has been 37 years and um but can we establish that without going into a lot of detail um uh, um this was just this was not somebody that you had a negative relationship with this was a personal trainer who was there you know in your life for a professional reason and then that occurred right he was my personal trainer, and I worked out with him for approximately nine and a half months. It took him, obviously, that long to earn my trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually considered him a friend at the time, um, you know, and so the sad reality is, you know, the, the large percentage of crimes that are happening are by people that you know. So it's not the stranger danger that when I was taught in school, um, it is more the people that you know. So... Um, yeah, he, you know, he, it took him that long to come into my house and, you know, keep in mind, he was charged with deliberate premeditated attempted murder, burglary in the first degree, assault with a deadly weapon and criminal threats. And, you know, law enforcement did everything they can. You know, I think law enforcement are the true heroes, the true celebrities, you know, they're catching so much in today's climate and we should really be, you know, listen, there's good and bad in everybody. We already know that, but they go truly above and beyond. And also, I wouldn't be here today if they didn't do what they did for me. They they truly did. But unfortunately, our legal system was messed up then, which I think is incredibly messed up now, um, even all these years later. But that's another thing we can talk about later. But, sure. you know, for me, law enforcement was amazing. Um, but when it got to the legal system, it got to the court system, there was a judge that should have never been on the bench. And long story short, he only served approximately 120 days, five years of anger management classes, and five years of um, basically, I guess, probation. Um, That's just incredible. (laughs) Yeah. You know, hard hard to believe it. How do – I know you – and you do have a particular – Program is it is it now in play or is it something you're developing in terms of court monitoring judges so that this hopefully would would not happen again in the way that it did? You know, I have had a, a dream of a wish, I guess per se, of wanting to start a court watcher program. I announced it years ago that I wanted to do it. Um, the unfortunate reality is is that we don't have the budget to do it or to set it up. So, you know, it would take a lot of, you know, the reality is it takes money to get things done like that. Right. And to have volunteers put into place to be able to be committed to doing that, even on a small level to start in just one county, it does take money to put that stuff in place. And unfortunately, we don't have the budget to do it. Hopefully, someday we will be able to get, you know, a grant or some donations or some funding in order to to launch that because I really do think especially in 2018 and beyond, that is something that's definitely needed. Well, can you, if, just hypothetically, if you, if you did have the funds, how it, well, tell, tell them a little bit about, you know, the, the, in, the incompetence of this judge and what happened. And then if you did, someone presented you with a grant tomorrow, how would you set that up? How, do, how would you foresee that happening, even if it was in one, one county? What, what would people be doing? Yeah, so, I mean, the biggest thing is, is to be able to, you know, people are afraid. They judge because they wear a robe and they're, they're on the bench that they can say and do whatever they want. Um, and that's not accurate. They have to follow the law also. Um, 
as well as law enforcement, as, law, as well as district attorneys, as well as public defenders, as well as anyone. They, there's a law, and you need to follow the law. And if you're not following the law, then even victims, in a respectful manner and by law as well, have a right to be able to stand up. And so for me, in my case, I filed a citation against the judge, um, and she was eventually removed from the bench. Um, and, you know, they gave her an option, retire or, you know, be removed without your retirement or anything. So long, long story short, she was removed from the bench, and so she can no longer re-victimize anyone. You know, a couple of years ago, we had a victim um, that was uh, sodomized by her stepbrother, and the judge was a, the mandatory sentence was 25 years, and he dismissed it down to 10 years, which is not law. So that, thankfully, by many of us speaking up and uh, people stepping up to the plate, that got changed back to the 25 years. So if we had volunteers and we had staff and the means to be able to have people sitting with victims, have people, which the advocates already do a great job sitting with the victims in the court, but they also cannot speak up on that mm -hmm. sense. But if we had people just documenting and taking notes and being able to see what kind of treatment or what kind of law is not being followed through, we could take it to the next level, whether it's filing a citation or a complaint or contacting the media or doing whatever is necessary to do. Right, if you had a specific training program for certain volunteers that were able to, to go in and, and, and do this, that sounds like that would be that would be wonderful, you know, like a pilot program. How how um far reaching is this do you do you think in, in perhaps doing research in terms of you know uh, what occurred with your case? Is it is it, it very common? Was was yours considered, you know, way out there if you look at the bell curve or is it a lot is it happening a lot more in in these kinds of cases you know i i think it's um you know i think there's been a lot of stuff that's been happening through the years that has not came out that has been not spoken of you know you see these doctors being arrested now um for sexual assault for um all these other charges um, you know, you, you hear and are seeing a lot more in today's climate, maybe because of social media, because of cell phones with cameras and video, um, maybe because of that reason, maybe because of the Me Too movement where some victims are just giving a platform now to share what they couldn't share years ago. Um, mm -hmm. I think that people are maybe exhausted and tired, and I see it on both sides. I think it is happening a lot more than we know of, but people are silenced, and especially victims. We have some victims that are coming forward and speaking up and speaking out, but we still have a climate today where victims are already victimized, and then they're afraid, they're scared, they're fearful, they are shamed, they're blamed, so they remain silent. So for us, we feel we're a voice for the voiceless. So if a victim is able to come to us, we don't give their identity, we don't give that information or platform, but we use our platform to be able to get the message and word out there. So in the sense of the a court watcher program, we could, we could do that so the victim wouldn't have to be the one if they ch chose not to. They could choose that they'd like to be the voice, and if they choose not to, we would be their voice for them. Right. Wow. That that sounds like a a wonderful plan. I I hope that it it becomes a reality sooner sooner versus later. And all of all of these groups, all of these endeavors, you know, the 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 operative word is funding. And if you can find the right benefactor, you can do tremendous things, can't you, Patricia? You know. Well, you know. The reality also, is, is go for ahead. me. The if reality for me is for just. Second. Oh, it go seems ahead. like. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oops, go um, ahead, lady. It seems, <laughs> you know, the process for victims compared to the process for the criminal, it just seems like this process never ends because why? I, I really don't have the reasons why. I think the reasons are very varied and depend on a lot of different procedures and a lot of different people throughout the criminal justice system but with like with your resources and and your organization going out and doing what you do for victims I, I mean I totally commend you but on the other hand 
When does it ever end for a victim? When can they get back to their lives? Never. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it never ends. I mean, in the sense of a victim, like for me, and again, I don't mean to dismiss anybody or their thoughts or feelings, but for me, I was victimized, but I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. And I believe there is a difference. I was victimized, but I don't want to be defined by the crime. Um, So I am a survivor. I am thriving. But I also am going to have moments for the rest of my life. I'm never going to be the Patricia that I was before April 4th of 2002. It's just not possible to go back to my mind, my body, my spirit beforehand. However, I chose, and I'm still choosing every day, to embrace who Patricia is today. Um, And if I have moments, every time I have to go past a 24-hour fitness, I get a trigger and I cringe. Every time I have to use saran wrap, I cringe and I think about it. But I acknowledge it. I recognize it. I give myself a moment. If I'm emotional, sad, angry, fearful, I acknowledge those moments. And then I decide to say, okay, now what am I going to do to move forward? Sometimes, you know, victims lose a lot of people in their family and in their friends, you know, because people don't want to know about victimization and crime. So it is a struggle. But we are no longer the same person. And we compartmentalize it, too, to be able to move on to, to do other, other things as well as what we're doing in our advocacy. Because if it was in the forefront of our mind every single day, 24-7, like you say, you, you couldn't get out of bed. Like, you couldn't get out of bed for, you know, a long time until you decided, here's the, here's the intersection, at the, here's the crossroads here, and I have, and I have to make a change. And about how I act, how I do things. And so I'm intrigued, Patricia, with regard to the fact that, you know, this occurred in 2002, but yet you founded your organization, right, in 2003, is that right? In 2003, yes. Right. So tell us how, with all of the the things that you were dealing with, um how you were able to make that transition. And I'm assuming that by starting this organization, that that sets you on a path for survivorship and healing. So how did, how, how did those things evolve to these positive things, to all of the wonderful things that you're doing now? Yeah, I, you know, People ask me that all the time. And you know what? Frankly, I wish I knew. I, I wish that I could figure there wasn't out a how I filed it. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't. It was, in all honesty, it was, I, I feel like, I do feel like, again, with faith, there is hope for me. And that's what I believe in. So I feel like I was just guided to be able to do the, because I did the paperwork myself to file. I did all of that. Um, and I think it was just a purpose higher than myself, a passion and a gift to be able to say, I don't want one other victim to go through what I went through. I don't want one other victim to be alone um, and feel like there's no hope for healing. So, you know, I started the organization. I was still going through the, the trial and all of that kind of stuff was still, so I have no idea. I, I honestly, I, looking back, I can tell you exactly what happened on April 4th of 2002, but I surely cannot tell you how I sat down to steal paperwork out to file for nonprofit of something that I never knew anything about in the first place. Um, well, I was a catering you, event planner. That's what I was just going to say. Your background and skills as as an event planner, I'm sure, I'm sure, that, and I'm sure that helped you because you you knew how to get you know things things going. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know the sad thing is, is again, I mean, it's we've been able to do amazing things within the organization with a great team of support. Um, but, you know, unfortunately the reality is, again, without, you know, donors and without dollars, we can't really function as an organization. So, you know, we've done an amazing job with our programs and our services and everything else. And it's, you know, it's just one day at a time. That's all we can do. Well, that's true. Can you, can you talk about some of the, um, some of the most innovative programs that you feature right now so that our listeners have, have some idea? Absolutely, and thank you for asking. So, you know, our, our, 
for our organization, Crime Survivors, is, you know, we want to provide support and guidance to all victims of violent crime. So if it's families of murder, survivors of attempted murder, rape, domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, elder abuse, human trafficking, um, and we can't do it all. So there's amazing organizations out there, and we want to collaborate and partner with other organizations. So if a victim is to call us, we want to make sure that we can provide, you know, whether they need to get into a shelter, whether they need to relocate, whether they need diapers for their baby, food, clothing, um, if they need counseling and therapy, if they need legal advocacy, whatever that victim may need, whether it's the first 24 hours or 16 years down the road and they finally have realized that they need help and support, we can be a listening ear, we can provide them additional resources, um, but our big thing is, is, you know, our four components are awareness. We want to get out to the community and neighborhood will know that crime happens and it does happen everywhere. We're not here to scare you. We're just here to let you know and inform you about, you know, the justice system. Um, you know, talking about different things that are happening in different states on laws that are changing continuously and not as victim friendly right now. Um, we talk about, you know, avenues of prevention. How do we prevent crime from happening? How do you protect yourself? Uh, making victims' rights a, a first priority. Um, and, you know, the knowledge and care um, to get out there in the community, working with law enforcement, district attorneys, probation, clinicians, service providers. And really advocacy. Advocacy, being able to advocate on behalf, again, a voice for the voiceless. Um, and just being there to support through the criminal justice system, um, letting people know, again, what their rights are, um, and, and just being out very outspoken, because I, I am very outspoken and, and a bit of a squeaky wheel, I always say. Me too. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, we have to be, right? And, and also for healing. I mean, the, the, the biggest obstacle in life, you know, is to be able to find the courage and the strength and persistence. And anybody that knows me knows that I'm extremely persistent. Otherwise I would never get anything done. So, but for a victim, it's to be able to give a clear path to hope, to healing and to strength so that they can know that they can survive. They can thrive. Um, and is it you truly know, we a wa- I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, um, I was just wondering from, from looking at the graphics and whatnot, is it a, uh, like a walk-in resource center, or is it primarily when you have people from the uh, judicial system or police departments refer, or is it a combination of all of those? How do you get your how do you get your referrals and your potential survivors in ter- or should I say customer base? Because it it looks like a lovely welcoming center you know, physically, so how do, how do people actually get to you, access you? Um, so basically we do have the Crime Survivors Resource Center um, locally where victims can come in. We do have many programs. We have our Art for Healing classes, our self-defense and safety classes, monthly support group, legal advocacy, counseling and therapy. Um, no two victims are alike. So we like to do an intake and then provide wraparound services as well. So you know, like I said earlier, one victim may need diapers and clothing. Um, one victim may need relocation. One victim may need to come to the Art for Healing or the monthly support group. So every victim is different dependent on what they need. But then we can also work with, you know, counselors and therapists and lawyers and a wide variety of other organizations and shelters to make sure that that victim has all different services in a wraparound service um, uh, place, Right. And then mm-hmm. the other avenue is, is our longstanding relationship um, going out in the community and working with other organizations and clinicians and service providers, doing our monthly roundtables in different counties, um, and being able to work with law enforcement very closely, doing speakings and presentations and trainings. So it's kind of a combination of both, having our resource center and then on top of that, being out in the community continuously, being able to be that voice, to be able to bring the awareness, the prevention, the advocacy, and healing to our community. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, is is your staff volunteer staff or paid staff? Do you procure from like social work, psychology, or whatever the people that are doing the um, upfront work for you, like in the resource center? 
who who's your staff comprised of? So as of right now, we only have one paid staff, but then we have many volunteers that are continuously uh-huh. helping and supporting our organization. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to I hate to always say this because I I honestly don't like to make it ever about donations or money. Um, and I never have until with the realization that if without it, we can't have staff, we can't have. And you do need to still treat, you know, people say in a nonprofit arena, they say, well, people shouldn't be paid. It should be all volunteers. Well, that's unrealistic because you cannot have a successful nonprofit without having paid staff and without having people out there continuously working. And I, we, I've tried that model. It hasn't been successful. And now I realize without those grants and donations, we can't expand our services to victims to help them on a greater need. Kind of like a corporation in a business, you're not going to have a CEO or your workers, your sales team saying, oh, I'm going to volunteer and not get paid. It's, that's just not going to happen. So, you know, we're continuously growing. Um, I'm hoping to be able to hire, um, you know, once we do find some funding, I'm hoping to be able to hire, you know, an advocate and an intake coordinator and, and a clinician even and other people too, but that's going to take time. So, Right. Well, and I've also heard that, you know, the downside of, of applying for grants and everything is that you kind of have to follow their rules and you're not as autonomous, but I guess it's a, a double-edged sword, correct? <laughs> Well, you know, we've always been, I've, I've always been transparent. Every penny in, every penny out, I want to be able to tell people where our money is going to because it's not our money, it's not my money, it's the donor's money, it's the community's organization, right? And so yeah. I believe in 100% transparency. However, when you do do these grants, it spends, you have to spend so much time and energy and effort reporting. And then sometimes you could report and then they decide, well, they don't want to give you the money or, or you cannot be the voice that I am in a lot of sense. So a lot of the government and federal grants, if you're outspoken like I am, they mm-hmm. don't want to give people money because they don't want to have someone out there being a squeaky wheel in all honesty. Right. And so sometimes you're better off doing what you're doing and try to get, you know, private donations and all of that. I understand your dilemma. I mean, I, I truly do. Um, what is it just for you as a person and being the leader of this organization? Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of, like, what would be a typical day in the life of Patricia now in 2018? It's funny. I always tell people, oh, I'm just sitting at home eating bonbons with my feet up on the couch watching TV, <laughs> reading a good book. Yeah, really. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, it depends from one day to the next. You know, one time years ago, I had someone say, hey, Patricia, can I just come along, kind of like on a ride along with you for the day? And then mm-hmm. he said afterwards, he's like, I can't do this. It's too much. You're, you're, it's too much. You're like all over the place. So, I mean, it depends. I mean, my schedule, I really live by my calendar for the most part, unless something comes up at the last minute and I have to change it. That That does happen. But um, you know, I mean, I can get up in the morning, you know, I half the time roll out of bed and the first thing I'm doing is looking at emails, checking different things on social media, trying to respond to people that, you know, early in the morning, six o'clock usually, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting ready, being able to, you know, the first thing I do, I have to be honest, is before I even get out of bed, before my feet touch the ground is I, I pray and I thank God for another day and for another breath, um, because without that, I wouldn't be able to do my, my passion and purpose and, and community work. So, you know, being able to get ready and being able to get out there, depending on if I have, you know, a meeting with a victim in the morning, someone with law enforcement, I'm doing a training or a speaking, or, you know, again, answering emails, answering phone calls, you know, doing all of the in-house uh, stuff for the organization, kind of the behind the scenes, whether it's putting together flyers, whether it's, um, you know, doing all of our social media that I, I handle all of that, whether it's doing our books, whether it's working with our board of directors, our volunteers, um, planning all of our events, whether it's our gala or our luncheon or our we do two survive and thrive run walks, one in one county, one in another county, um, kind of doing all of the ordering for those kind of things, making sure we have rentals, tables, chairs, whatever, you know, making sure that I can get donations like diapers and 
gift cards and blankets so that I can make sure that those go to victims of crime. So, you know, doing our hosting our hygiene drives and our different things like that because we deliver snacks and treats and hygiene items and blankets and stuff to different law enforcement agencies, putting together our child and adult victim emergency bags. I'm in charge of all of our programs, all of our services, all of our events. Um, you know, so it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, but dependent on the day, dependent on the time, everything changes from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's a huge amount for, for one person and a staff person. How large is your volunteer force at this, at this point in time? You know, it could range from one to a hundred, depending on what it is that we're doing, whether it's, you know, our run walk where we need a tremendous amount of volunteers whether it's our Art for Healing class where we maybe only need one or two volunteers to come and help and support. So it really is a wide range of, you know, what we're doing, and it changes from one day to the next. Right now we're trying to get some interns as well, so um, we're going through that process to apply and to fill out paperwork and get job descriptions together so that we can do requests for interns, and whether those are going to be strictly volunteers or not, I don't know yet, but... Um, they will be added to our list also. Yeah. I mean, I, it sounds it's all about collaboration and networking and being able to pull from various um, resources that you've made over time, correct? I, I, that's always been extremely important to me is collaboration and partnership because no matter how large or small any organization is, in my honest opinion and what I feel, um, and I have from day one, even as we've grown, no one organization can do it alone. Now, the unfortunate reality is sometimes in, in the nonprofit arena, it's not as plain nice as a sandbox per se. And I haven't figured out why. I always say I'm very like, this. going from the corporate arena to the nonprofit sector is like poodles to pit bulls. Because <laughs> right. it's, I don't know if it's because of the acknowledgement, the recognition, the awards, if it's about the almighty dollar, I don't know, but it it seems like it doesn't play as nice depending on what area you are in. But it's extremely important to me to collaborate, to partner, and to step aside sometimes to say, oh, that organization is doing that. We don't need to repeat what they're doing. Let's collaborate and partner with them. Versus competition, correct? Because in certain areas, I've seen that too. There's a lot of – there's some overlap, and it, you know, and it can be, get – mean and vicious and that's not what it's about you know it's about what you just said correct I always say check your personal self at the door and remember why you're in the nonprofit sector you don't have to you don't have to be friends you don't have to go to dinner together you don't even have to invite me to your kid's birthday party but for goodness sakes if you're going to be in this sector then we need to collaborate come to the table and work together for victims and leave our own personal self and issues at the door Absolutely, I, I, that 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 is so true. And and if you you maintain that attitude, things will run a lot smoothly. You know? What what do you think, Patricia? Have been um, areas where you over time since two thousand and three uh, three that you've made the most inroads when you look at the um, the needs of of people who have had violent crime uh, visit them. You know, I think there's been great strides moving forward with things like Mercy's Law, with them now opening up things for DNA to be able to, to you know, do that, um, to check some of the rape kits, the Me Too movement, which I am not at the top of any of that. I'm only a tiny piece to this huge puzzle just trying to do, you know, grassroots work. But I've also seen such a change with, you know, I thought it was going to get so much better, but it seems like it's more offender-friendly and more rehabilitation-friendly now than it is for victims. So I feel like although we've taken huge steps forward, I feel like we've also taken huge steps back. And I'm hoping that it starts balancing it out. But when you have states across the nation that are now even taking away bail, and what does that do to set up victims? And when you think about things like them trusting, like the Arnold Foundation put out a tool to be able to start trusting a computer to say whether a person should be released from prison or not, um, rather than the judicial system or the judge, it, it's very frightening to see that. It's frightening to 
safety, molesters. It's frightening of being murderers, released early from prison. Um, but then again, I don't want to be all negative because I've also seen great things happening within many organizations oh. throughout the nation. Yeah. I'm getting a little bit of an echo there. Can you? Um, are you on speaker? Oh, no. Oh, okay. There you go. I can hear you better now. Um, Sorry. Uh, oh, okay, that's okay. Um, that happens on radio. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there. You know, technology is a wonderful thing, but um, so yeah, there there are a lot of advancements, and a lot of people, are, a lot of um, crime survivors are hanging their hats on you know new innovations with DNA and everything to to help assist with cold cases because a lot of the sort of gumshoe um, investigation methods and all of that or even resources from the FBI that maybe had been helping now from what I've heard from other our other um, colleagues that we know they're they're being funneled into things like terrorism and whatnot so th- I think the value with with organizations that we we know of and I was one of the founders of survivors of homicide uh, Inc. in Connecticut back in the 80s, um, there, there is, you know, is that taking the focus off of the real human needs of, of the crime victims because there's always going to be new, new, new families coming up that need all of those people-oriented human service um, resources, um, regardless of how the, the case pans out. I mean, I don't know. Um, what, what do you have to say about that? You know, I just wish, my thing is, is I wish, even in 2018, I said this back in 2002, I said it in 2003, and, and I think I've said it every year, but I, I didn't think still in 2018 we would be living in a time where we're still shaming and blaming the victim. So you hear, oh, he was murdered. Was he in a bad neighborhood? Oh, she was raped. Was she wear- showing erotic cleavage and wearing a short skirt? Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, she he punched her in the face. Was she not doing what he said to do? So you hear a neighbor, you know, a child was molested, and you hear a neighbor come out from across the street or next door say, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that. He was such a nice guy. He's been next to me for 10 years. And to me, that still I still get a cringe that we're still shaming and blaming victims. And I hope that we can change that because no matter what the situation or circumstance is, a victim does not get up in the morning saying, I think I want to be a victim today. You know, yes, there are some people maybe that are, you know, not uh, truthful, very small percentage of victims that are found out later that maybe they, they said something that wasn't accurate. But that's not the reality. The reality is that a victim is not going to make up victimization or trauma like that and have to live through what they have to live through. So I wish people would start blaming and shaming the offender instead of the victim. Absolutely. And even we've talked um, during many shows about the emphasis by the media, media constantly of the perpetrator versus even naming who the victims were, giving them any kind of recognition for the sensationalism. And it just, it drives me crazy, you know. Um, At least equal time, if not, you know, if you have to report on the perpetrator, we we deserve to have that voice with the media too. And, you know, we're constantly clamoring for, you know, getting our issues out there. I've just dealt with a, you know, parole hearing again, and I'm encountering that where media – here locally, don't don't want to help me. Don't want to help me even when I have the tools to, to to help other people. So it's very frustrating, Patricia. And you know, I I, I don't know. I I totally agree with, with 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 what you're saying you're saying here. And I think I think we have to do things differently. And I think it's just um, you know slowly over time. I mean. Um, look what's happening with the victims of Bill Cosby. Just watched that show last night, and yes, you know, yes, he was convicted. So uh, maybe on a case by case basis, this this is how it is going to happen. But I I feel as if we we still have to be there for for other people. And 
the value. Uh, Delilah, you remember how we were talking last week about, you know, one of the commonalities here, and Patricia, do you agree with this? It, regardless of what aspect of your your case or your victimization, um, people, no matter what circumstance they are, they do not many times know how to access resources. They don't know where to go for help. They don't understand their own state government and how it works. They don't know, you know, that they can go to their police department for this or, or their community center for that or whatever. That is such a huge need, and I see that you organizations like yours are filling that need. And do you, do you see that, that people – People just don't know what to do, don't know where to go. And how do we direct them? How, what's the best way? I definitely feel that it is very difficult because a victim may get a resource by law enforcement. They may get their rights. They may get that, again, from the hospital. They may get it from different places. They may not get it as well. They, sometimes, you know, whatever reason, they didn't get it. Um, but they may get it, and they may forgot they got it. And then... Because when you're victimized, you have possibly PTSD, anxiety, depression, you're scared, you're fearful. There's so many things going in your head at once that you don't even know. And then you, maybe three days later, five days later, you're stuck with like, okay, now what? Um, Or even the first 24 hours, a domestic violence victim trying to get to a safety plan, trying to get out of the house, whatever that may be. There's a lot of national hotlines that they can call and get a step-by-step guide on how to do that. You know, a family of murder that's trying to bury their loved one. Now, how do they get the support? And so that's why I think it's so important with passing on information. I always tell service providers, don't just give your service or program to a victim. Before you hang up, think about giving three to five other organization resources to that victim, letting them know. And by all means, say to the victim, is it okay I call you back in a week to check in on you? Because maybe what the victim needs today changes next week because now they're out of their fog or not in the fog as much. So asking a victim, like I said earlier, no two victims are alike. What does that victim need? And and don't be afraid to ask. And whether you ask, are you okay? A lot of people say, oh, you should never ask a victim, are, are they okay? Because they're not okay. But let them give that answer to you if they can say, are you okay? And they say, yeah, I'm okay. They say, no, really, are you okay? What do you need? What do you need? Find out. Right, right. And and like you say, it changes from time to time. So you can't say to the police officer that comes to the door, oh, I gave them our card, I've done my job. Or, you know, oh, I I gave them a hotline number. That being being a crime victim slash survivor is not a one-and-done process, (laughs) you know? right? It's not a one and done approach. Oh, I did that last week. So I did that. Now I'm on to, you know, you have to revisit it because of the nature of being a a victim and your ability to go through those steps of grief. And they're not, you know, clean cut steps, one step forward, three steps back, as we know, Patricia. So it's a constant revisiting. And I think for the people in the general public, Maybe that's the thing that's very wearing. What do you, um, I, I want to get into a little bit because I, I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing a little bit about, about your family and family dynamics and how that impacts so that other people can relate. What is it that we, that, you know, we should be aware of with regard to family, family dynamics or people that we work with and, and the fact that, you know, just because you ask somebody on Monday at work, um, you know, can I get you a cup of coffee, doesn't mean that you've, you've done your good deed for the month and, and, and you're all set. What should we be doing as friends and family members to help? You know, we can all make a difference, all of us. We can all do a little bit better. We can all give a little bit more. I mean, when people say, oh, Patricia, I don't have the money, I can't do this, I can't do that. Just say, I don't want to do it if you don't want to do it. Because I learned a lesson, and I'm okay if people say, I can't, I don't want to, whatever. Just say, I don't want to do it. Because even a homeless man gave me four quarters one time out on the street. So really? there are people that can give. And, and maybe one person can give a tremendous amount, and another person can only give some toothpaste and toothbrush from the 99 cent store. 
but all of us can do something. And Or maybe some of us choose not to give the almighty dollar, but some of us choose to give one hour a month of their time to come and help at a shelter or at an organization or submit things online. So I think it's also realizing family members to have to realize that that victim that was victimized may not be the person that they want them to be any longer and to kind of accept that and not push or force them to going back to someone they're not and just giving them time and a family member just letting that victim know that they're loved, they're supported, and what do they need, and maybe providing a resource, even at work putting together some resources and leaving them on a break room. Maybe there's someone in the office that you think has been victimized, but you don't want to like push the issue or say something, just put the resources in the break room or, you know, maybe host a, a, a toy drive at your office or a toothpaste and toothbrush or stuffed animal or, or whatever it is, a drive to be able to help one of your local shelters or organizations in the community. Um, we all post on social media what we had for dinner last night or selfies of one another. So why not post a safety plan on your social media? Why not post the national suicide hotline on your social media? Why not post statistics um, on your social media of domestic violence or safety or stop bullying? So those things cost nothing to do. So it's getting involved and finding out what you can do for your community that will help another human being. Yeah, I I so agree with you. And uh, Delilah, I was just wondering, you know, you you work with so many different people who are sort of advocates out there um, for other people, representing you know certain certain classes of people. But do you agree with this? Isn't it true that in order to reach people, um, we it doesn't it doesn't come down to us having to be a national advocate. We can all do that, you know that famous motto. We can just do one thing, and if we can do that one thing, that takes you know less than a minute. We've made a contribution, and I, don't know, I think I think a lot of times. I think a lot of times if you let people know that you have a sense of availability, people know that you're available for the help that they need and they will come to you. Sometimes you need to reach out. If you see something that isn't quite right or you see someone who's in a crisis or or needs some sort of help that you can provide, then you have to reach out. I think it's not necessary to be in a giant organization or a nonprofit or it's just human nature. It's humanity from human right. to human. And someone's hurt. We should be helping. Absolutely. Well, if you see something, say something, do something, no matter what it is, no matter what the situation is, is yeah, you have to, that's the big thing. See something, say something, do something. Don't but but it has to be more than a motto. It has you have to be proactive about that. There's there's so many sayings out there and they look good on paper, but we have to put them into action, correct? Yeah. We do. We we have to take the initiative and say, Oh, um, no one else is doing that or it just has to be part of your makeup. And I have to believe that although there are those bad apples out there in society, not everybody that's online is gonna say oh, I'm not going to do it. what's in it for me? Because if it was what's in it for me, we wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> and there are so many good people out there, and you have, to, you have to believe that. So we have to have the ability to capture the eye of those people that have that in their character and have the confidence to say, no, I, I can't be a national advocate, but I can, I can do this much. So if we can capture that, or, you know, I can give $10 a month. It doesn't matter. At least they're doing something, correct? Every penny makes a difference. Every minute can make a greater impact. And it's just, if you just keep in mind one person, one community, one family at a time, you can't, you don't, you can't, 
it was hard for me to realize I can't change the world in a sense. I can't help everyone. And, and that's right. a hard thing to say. There's things I have, to, I have to turn victims away, and it always breaks my heart because I'm like, why can't I? But it's like I realize, but there are other people out there that with our wraparound services that I can refer them to to know that they will get that help and support. So we don't have to do everything. So if people think, well, I can't give money, like they'll say to me, I said, you don't have to give $1,000. What about a dollar? What about mm-hmm. volunteering? So, yes, we can all do something. You know, give, clean out your closet and go donate it. You know, go donate it to the shelter or have a garage sale and then donate that money to a shelter or half of it even. You don't have to give all of it. I mean, now on social media, even on Facebook, you can, ha- you can host your birthday and you can choose a charity of your choice throughout the nation and choose that charity and raise money for them. To fundraise. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, on yeah. Facebook. So that's something and that's easy. easy that doesn't take a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. So there are so many ways. So we're hoping by discussing this, you know, we're inspiring those other people to say, step up and go help crime survivors because in, 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 in those four or five counties that you serve. And I just wanted to ask also, we've got like about three minutes, Patricia, um, in terms of eligibility, do you serve all of California or just those counties or do you refer, I know you provide wraparound services, but what, what is your, your service provider area per se? And then if you don't have it, you refer to other groups. Is that right? Yeah. So we have Southern California right now, but we definitely get calls throughout from different states, from Canada, from Michigan, from Washington, from all different places. And I never just say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't serve you. Goodbye. I say, you know what? If you're in need of help and support, would you like me to take a little bit of time to research and provide you with a referral in your state or your county? Although I can't stand behind that organization or agency because I don't know them, but I'd be happy to research and give you those referrals. So that's something that's been very important for me. And it's the idea to just not hang up on a victim and, and to let them know there is support out there. And if any of them are listening today, I definitely want to let them know there's still hope for healing. Um, there's still someone out there that does care, that does love you, that does want to help and support you, no matter what it is, that situation or circumstance. So don't live with shame or blame or guilt that today's a new day. Um, the sun is shining, um, depending on where you're at. Um, you know, no matter what the weather is, no matter what your income is, no matter what your situation and circumstances, there is hope to break the cycles of victimization to be able to survive and thrive. Yes, absolutely. And we, yeah, we always like to um, leave our leave our listening audience with a, a, an inspirational message like that. And I just, do, do you have one particular thing that that has occurred in the recent past with regard to what what your organization has done that you you're extremely proud of and you'd like to brag about? Because that would be a positive thing as well. What's what's something that is you know, comes to mind, say, this is what we did, you know, recently, and it was great. I mean, I think that the the greatest thing that I've been able to achieve with the help of a great team and support system is being able to open up the Crime Survivors Resource Center, which April 4th of 2002, I was obviously victimized, like I talked about, but then on April 4th of 2018, we opened up the doors to the Crime Survivors Resource Center, of which I had a dream for a very long time, and that happened with a lot of guidance and a lot of support. Um, and it couldn't have happened without the people that are in our surrounding team. So I just want to be able to thank everybody for that because I think it's it's a powerful message to be able to say never give up on your hopes, never give up on your dreams because no matter if it happens the first day or 16 years or 20 years later, get, keep dreaming and, and never give it up because it can happen. And the dream is for us to be able to help so many more victims now that are traumatized and victimized, to be able to empower and strengthen a community with awareness and prevention and advocacy and healing. Right. Can you give us your contact information so that if people are listening and they would like to contact you, they can? Absolutely. They can go to our website, which is www.crimesurvivors.org. They can also send over an email, info at crimesurvivors.org. 
They can also call us at 844-853-HOPE, and that's a toll-free number. So they can give us a call. They can email us. They can go on our website again, crimesurvivors.org, and get all of our information regarding our organization. Well, that's wonderful, and I, I, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing this, and I hope you'll stay in touch with me, with us, as a possible resource. And, um, you, you know, I think this has been a very inspirational show, and um, thank you for being part of our family. Delilah, you have some parting words? I'm just happy that... Patricia was able to come and speak yeah. about the organization, and it, this is this is a labor of love for her. You can feel it in her words. You can and Absolutely. So thank you, Patricia, and good luck with the future of your work. Yeah. Thank you so very much. And if there's ever anything that we can do to collaborate or partner, or you know anyone in help in need of help or support, by all means, please let me know. Okay, we, we will. So with that, we will close out another dish, edition of Shattered Wise Radio. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you, Delilah. And we will see you next week, part of the Inside Lens Network. Have a nice week, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.